Please turn with me in your scriptures to the book of Exodus, to the accounts, for, to the recording for us in Exodus of the Ten Commandments. They are found in Exodus 20, and we will read Exodus 20 through 21. The word of the Lord divides us. The word of the Lord is sharper than any two-edged sword, we are told, and the word of the Lord separates from us and shows us where we are unholy and shows us where we need to pursue holiness more and more in our lives. And the law helps us do that as well. So listen as we read from Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates." For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false witness or false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Let us pray. God, we are a culture, we are a land that seeks truth. And we are told in the Gospel of John that your word is truth. Lord, truth changes. Truth convicts, truth trains, and truth teaches. And so, Lord, meet us in all of those areas. Your word is inspired and it is profitable for that, that teaching. It is profitable for challenging and correcting. And it is profitable for training in righteousness. And so meet us today in your word. Correct those that need to be corrected. Challenge those that need to be challenged and train and teach those who need to be trained and taught. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. In, the, in 2001, George O'Leary was appointed as head coach of the Notre Dame University football team. 
This was his dream job. He, at least as far as we knew, he had worked his life to get to the point where he could coach a university football team. There's a reporter in, Notre, in the, the town where Notre Dame is, though, that, that, that felt like there were some discrepancies in George O'Leary's past, and he couldn't quite put his thumb on what the problem was until he went to a college in New Hampshire where George O'Leary had written that he had played football and lettered three years for that college football team, only to find out there was absolutely no record of George O'Leary ever playing football for this university in New Hampshire. Of course, all of George O'Leary's dreams fell apart as it was discovered that everything except for that one item on his resume was true. His brother was actually interviewed not long after George O'Leary lost his job, and his, his brother said, I don't understand why my brother lost his job as head football coach. There's not a resume out there that's honest. If you've ever hired anybody, you've probably been through that particular scenario. We, on our resumes, have a temptation, and sometimes we yield to temptations to, to take the bad things in our job history and, and make them look better, and take the good things in our job history and make them look great. We live in a culture that has a wishy-washy relationship with truth. And yet we are called to be a people of truth. And so today, as we look at the ninth commandment, we're going to look at, look at what it means to be a people of truth by looking at the original context of what it meant to be a false witness or a testimony, by looking at the expanded sense of the law through the book of Hosea, and then finally by looking at the foundation of our truthfulness. First, what does it mean for the people of the book of Exodus when God through Mo well, God tells them directly, you shall not give false testimony to your neighbor? In this context, this is very specifically directed toward a courtroom type context. Now, we have to be careful when we consider the courts of the ancient Near East and not translate our version of what courts are back several thousand years. In the ancient Near East, if you had been uh, accused of a crime, your witness would go before the magistrate, whether it was a king or whether it was a, a single kind of mayor type ruler over a city. Your accuser would go before that magistrate and he would lay out his, his or her case before you. Actually, his case before you back during uh, in the ancient uh, Near East, female testimony was not accepted. If somebody went before that magistrate and accused you of a crime, you didn't necessarily have to be there in order for judgment to be passed upon you. So if I had an accusation to make against one of you before one of the magistrates downtown, I could do it when you're out of town and the ruling could be given against you while you were gone. In the ancient Near East, the accused was presumed guilty until proven innocent. We have changed our view of the legal system quite a bit where we are now presumed innocent until proven guilty. One witness could condemn a person to punishment or to death in the ancient Near East. And the important thing to remember, there was no CSI, there was no forensic evidence, there was no Abbey to run the mass spectrometer or the uh, DNA machine there in the lab. 
to prove a person's innocence or guilt. And so it was up to um, witnesses to determine. But God says, my people Israel will do things differently within the legal court system. Uh, if we were to read through the rest of the law, through especially Deuteronomy, we would see that for Israel, trials were to be conducted before a group of elders rather than before a single monarch or a single magistrate. Deuteronomy 19.15 shows us that God requires a minimum of two witnesses for a capital offense. So I couldn't just go accuse one of you by myself of a, of a capital crime and have judgment passed upon you. There had to be at least two witnesses. In order for somebody to be protected, if they were found guilty of a capital offense, the accusers were the ones to throw the first stone at the execution. They did not rely upon the state to carry out punishments at this time. If, if I accused one of you, or if one of you accused me of a capital crime, I'll, I'll give you guys a break here for just a second. If one of you accused me of a capital crime and I was found guilty, it would be your responsibility to throw the first stone at me as carrying out my punishment. And Deuteronomy 19.18 states that false witnesses were to suffer the same punishment that they were seeking from the court. Let's say I went before that group of judges and I falsely accused you of a capital offense and it was found out that myself and my fellow witness were lying in that I would be liable for the punishment that I sought against you. God built the legal trial system of the nation of Israel around a foundation of truth and around a foundation of protection for the accused, not protecting them from all punishment for crime, but protecting them from false accusations, protecting them from false uh, convictions, and protecting them from experiencing false, excuse me, false uh, uh, punishment for crimes. But all of this legal system was built upon a foundation. And it was built upon the foundation that we find here in the ninth commandment. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. The against your neighbor part was what I left out uh, when I typed out the uh, catechism question there. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And in a very narrow sense, this is a legal declaration. When we walk into a courtroom today and we are going to give testimony for or against someone, what's the first thing we do? We're called to throw our right hand up in the air and say, I, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And depending upon where you are, so help me God or, or some version of that particular oath. It's typically not those exact words, but that's what we are swearing to. And God is saying here. When you are called to give witness or testimony against your neighbor, give true witness, give true testimony. Now, who is our neighbor? In the immediate context here, it is fellow Israelites. But what is, how does Jesus answer the question, who is my neighbor? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells a parable, does he not? Samaritan walking down the or a man walking down the road. He gets 
He gets mugged and he's left for dead on the side of the road. The, the fellow Israelite who's a, who's a religious leader walks by and ignores him. A fellow Israelite who's a legal scholar walks by and ignores him. A hated Samaritan walks by and stops, binds up his wounds, carries him to an inn, pays for his care and says, I'll be back in a while. If there's not enough money here, I'll make up for it. Who treated the beaten man like a neighbor? And in saying that, in saying that the Samaritan, we call him the good Samaritan, is the one who acted the most neighborly. Jesus is saying everybody is our neighbor. So who are we called to speak truthfully about in a courtroom setting? Any other human being. Any other human being who may be sitting there. You may, you may be called to give witness in a trial. And it may be somebody that for some reason you don't like. Whether they've done something to you or, or maybe you, you've grown up in a culture where just because they're different from you, you don't like them and you still embrace that culture. You may be tempted to, to, to shave your testimony just a little bit to make their actions look not quite so good. But we are called, no matter who that person is sitting in that courtroom, to give true testimony about them. But does, do we do justice to this particular commandment, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, if we say this is a courtroom commandment and nothing else? This commandment does not apply to me outside of a legal courtroom. Do we do justice to this commandment? I say no. In Hosea chapter 4, the first couple verses, God is laying out against the nation of Israel a list of sins. And in that list of sins, there's, there's parallels to the Ten Commandments. It's almost as if, well, it's not almost as if, it's basically what God is doing here is saying, hey, back in Exodus, back during the Exodus at Mount Sinai, I gave you a list of laws to live by. And here they are, I'm going to list them for you and you are, show you where you are failing at them. And when God through Hosea comes to what is parallel to the ninth commandment, God uses a different word. The word here in Exodus 20 is definitely a legal courtroom term. But the word God uses in Hosea is a word that basically means any falsehood, any lie, any untruth whatsoever, not just in a legal context, but in any application in your life. And you have violated that. And so we see from Scripture that any type of lying, any type of dishonesty is covered by this law. So what kind of, uh, in a negative sense, what is covered by this? Now, I can't cover everything that's covered by this law because we as humans... Uh, are very smart and very good at finding ways to twist the truth and avoid the truth. But I, I want to hit a few here that, that maybe hopefully hit home for some of you. Well, for all of us. Number one, lying. Straight out lying is forbidden by the law. Big lies, little white lies, fibs, a uh, little shading of the truth. Uh, and anything that could be looked up and defined as lying is forbidden by this commandment. 
There's a, there's a, a way in which we also violate this commandment called equivocation. How many of you know that there are words out there that may have two meanings? And sometimes when we're in conversation with people, we, we purposely use those words uh, that we know have two meanings, that we know can be very vague in order to kind of confuse or muddle the situation. Uh, Latter-day Saints, if they show up at your house, they will use words that I use from the pulpit here that some of you use in your own discussions of things about Jesus and about the Scriptures. They'll use the word grace. And they use it so that they can trick you into thinking that both of you believe the same thing. But they don't. And many times they know that. They know that they're using a word differently. I, uh, I have to confess, I used to do this with my boss. I knew that there were words that I could use that meant one thing to me, but meant something else to him that I thought would keep me out of trouble. Until my boss figured out that I was equivocating with him. And then it got me into even farther more trouble. Flattery and exaggeration are forbidden by the law. Do you ever tell somebody that, man, you look nice today? Or, man, I really appreciate the way you handled that situation. Not merely to compliment them, but, but maybe to get them to kind of do something for you or make a decision in your favor. favor. Hey, Mr. Boss, I need next Friday off. And, and I just want to tell you, you're, you've got to be the best boss I've ever worked for. That may be, that not maybe, that flattery in that category is false witness. Or have you ever told a story about a situation, maybe a conflict or an argument? Or, or do you know the person that every time they tell you about an argument they've had with somebody else, they always win? Every argument they've ever had, they've won. Or maybe, maybe you're the person who tells the story and every argument you've ever had, you've won. That's exaggeration. That's falsehood. That's lying. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Have you ever made a promise or told somebody you'd do something and had to break it uh, uh, because you wanted to or because you just didn't want to keep that vow? That's a violation of the ninth commandment. But I think the biggest area where we struggle in our world and in our church is the area of slander and gossip. Blaise Pascal said, I lay it as fact that if all men knew what others say of them, there would be few friends in the world. Gossip is defined as talking about someone in such a way that her reputation is damaged. Proverbs 22.1 tells us that a good name or a good reputation is to be pursued above all. And gossip or slander is our attempt to steal that person's good name for them, from them, without their ability to answer the questions. Gossip is basically us going to the magistrate without that person there to defend themselves and accusing them of sins they did not commit. Gossip is built on hearsay. Gossip is built on rumor, innuendo, unreliable communication. And whenever we do it, we are bearing false witness against our neighbor. Now, gossip's easy, unfortunately. 
James says that our tongues naturally move toward destruction. Our tongues naturally move toward the tearing down of other people. And so for us as sinners, as us for broken people, gossip is easy. But unfortunately, there's another side of gossip that we can be guilty of, but we may not realize it. Have you ever just listened to gossip and not gone, hey, wait, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This just doesn't sound right. Are, are we sure we really should be saying this? Or we all know the joke, it's not gossip if you say bless their heart before or after you say it, right? So when somebody says, hey, have you heard about so-and-so? Well, bless her heart. You know what's coming, don't you? If we just let it happen, if we just let it roll, we are just as guilty of gossip as the person who has spoken those words. Because we have given our, our, our commendation to that. We have given our agreement to that. If we don't stop and say, is that right that we are saying this? How can we know if something is, is gossip, whether we're speaking it or hearing it? Well, there's, there's three questions we can ask. First is what I am about to say or to hear true. Before you say something to somebody else, ask yourself, is it true? If it is true, if it's not true, then stop right there. That's gossip. That's a violation of the ninth commandment. If it is true, does the person I'm talking to really need to hear this? You know, if you've ever been in a counseling situation, one of, the, one of the ways that a counseling relationship works is that you know that person that you are talking to is not going to breathe a word of what you say outside those four walls. Unless you admit to a violation of the law and then at times they are obligated to call the law enforcement. But if what you say... If you cannot trust that person to not walk outside the room, log on to Facebook and say, oh my goodness, Ike just said, bless his heart, blah, 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 blah. There's no basis. So if something is true, does the person you're talking to really need to hear it? And thirdly, if it's true and that person really needs to hear it, would you express that information in that way? to the person you're talking about if you had the opportunity to see them face to face. So on the negative side, this law covers lying, equivocation, flattery, breaking promises, and gossip. On the positive side, this law reminds us that we are images of God. God speaks and we have been given the power of speech to worship God and to bless and encourage our fellow human beings. Paul says throughout several of his letters, Lift one another up with your words. Lift one another up with your, with your songs. Lift one another, bless one another, and encourage one another with your voice. That's what we're called to do. That's why we've been given the power of speech. Not to tear down, not to give false witness, but to lift up, to encourage, and to raise up. But why does God care so much about truth? God cares about truth because the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are truth. Romans chapter 3, verse 4 tells us that God is a truth-telling God. Isaiah 53, 9, 
John 1.14, John 14.6, John 18.37 tell us that Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is Himself truth. 1 John chapter 4, verse 6 tells us that the Holy Spirit is a spirit of truth. And how do we know about those three people, the, the three persons in the Godhead? We know it through His Word, which John 17, 17 reminds us that God's Word is truth. God is the truest thing out there. God is the definition of truth. God is true. He cannot tell a lie. The Son is truth. He cannot tell a lie. The Spirit is truth. He cannot tell a lie. And He calls us to be people of truth who do not tell lies, who do not bear false witness. And the one that we are told in John 14, 6, who is the way, who is the truth, and who is the life, He is the means by which we approach the Father and are reconciled to Him. Even when we speak falsehoods, even when we bear false witness against our neighbor. George Orwell is credited with saying, in a time of universal deceit, telling truth is a revolutionary act. We've come a long way since the mid-20th century uh, when George Orwell supposedly said those world words. And I truly believe that we are more and more a culture of deceit. Universal deceit is probably more universal than it was in the mid-20th century. But as followers of Jesus, we are called, I actually have in my notes, we have an opportunity, but it's stronger than that. We are called to be revolutionary in a world of universal deceit. We are called to live lives that reflect the truth of the gospel, the truth of the Savior of man entering our hearts and changing us. We are called to proclaim truth to power. We are called to proclaim truth to our neighbor. We are called to be a people of truth. We are called to be a revolutionary people. But truth doesn't sell well in our world today. Truth convicts. We are called to, to remind the world that God expects us to live according to His law and His rules. And the world doesn't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that sometimes. But the world definitely doesn't. Truth tells us that our definitions are wrong. We have definitions of what it means to flourish. We have definitions in our culture of what it is to be right, what it is to be wrong. And truth convicts and confronts those definitions and says, no, God determines what's right and wrong. Truth exposes our faults and failings. Oh my goodness. Man, you do a week-long study on gossip, whew, it'll expose your faults in a heartbeat. You do a week-long study on truth and lying and exaggeration. Oh, at the end of it, I was on a, almost on, a, on, a, on the floor underneath my desk going, Oh God, why have you saved me? Because I definitely don't deserve it. But in that truth, exposing our faults and our failings, truth can set us free. Because the truth is, I don't deserve to be saved. And yet the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who is the way, the truth, and the life, became the victim of false witness so that I might have salvation. Took a beating because of false witness so that I might have salvation. Died a cursed death upon the cross because of false witness so that I might have salvation. My sin accused Christ falsely 
My sin accuses God falsely of being unfair, of being mean, of denying me pleasures as I describe and define them. I falsely testify against God every day. And yet He took that sin upon Himself in the Son on the cross so that I might have His righteousness. And that truth sets me free. We celebrate that truth today in the bread and the juice of the Lord's Supper. And anyone who embraces the truth of our sinfulness and then the truth that Christ is Lord and the truth of His righteousness as our only cover and our only hope can be set free by the truth. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, as we consider our lives, as we consider our words, help us to be a people of truth. Help us to stand as shining examples of your truth in this world that embraces universal deceit. Help us to embrace your truth in our lives that brings salvation, the truth that we are sinners before you and the truth that you have purchased our salvation. You have taken judgment upon yourself for those who embrace you and your Son as our Lord and Savior. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.